Welcome to the Hysterecology Podcast. This is Andrea Hansen and Elizabeth Beckman. Today we're talking about the coaching industry, specifically more life coaching, life spiritual coaching, and what these two therapists think about it. Especially the self-proclaimed coaches. Yes. And some of the dangers there. We have some concerns. There are some cool things about it that we're going to talk about in future podcasts, but for this one, we're going to talk about some of our concerns with the life coaching industry. I've actually had a lot of conversations recently with various people where I've I've come to some understanding that a lot of people don't realize coaches don't have any credentialing or don't have to have any credentialing. Anybody at any moment can decide that they are now a coach. There's no oversight whatsoever. And I didn't realize that that wasn't common knowledge. And that applies to life coaching, um, health coaching, wellness coaching, success coaching. coaching. Yeah, all the different niches of coaching. Anyone at any moment can say, I am now this coach. So then it, it and we, you and I had had this conversation earlier where it's hard enough when you when you go on to you know social media or you go to your friends for lunch or a networking meeting or whatever it is and you say something that you're going through or something that's happening in your life and people want to hop on with advice it's hard enough to not be distracted by that device advice uh, but if the person giving you that advice is a coach, now they're labeling themselves as an authority figure and sometimes even an expert in yeah. this category and saying, well, I'm, I'm a coach and I get all of these great results and, and this is how you should solve this problem in your life. It gets a lot more difficult to, like we were saying earlier, trust yourself and lean in on your own process and know what advice you're getting is actually expert advice versus any advice from anybody. Well, and like you said, the differentiating of that is difficult. And I know before I became a therapist, I wasn't even aware of, and I'm still not an expert about all of the different possible educational routes for mental health professionals. Now I can list off a set of them, and I know generally what the differences are, but even people outside of the mental health profession they're just kind of like, well, a therapist or a psychologist. There can be these blanket terms when really like a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a marriage and family therapist, a professional counselor, a social worker, a a health counselor, a substance abuse counselor. They all all come with different educations. And then depending on the program you go to, uh, at times different levels of certification or licensure associated, but absolutely... uh, Generally, there is a uniform set of principles and skills that you are being trained in. There are years of education, years of oversight, hours and hours of supervision, t- official tests you have to take um, to receive that sign off and demonstrate competency in that profession. And then there are oversight committees, and there are not only Uh, ethics for each individual uh, profession when it's an official profession with official certification or licensure. But then there is even sometimes uh, that state ethics and national ethics. And so all of these things are in place to hopefully ensure 
that if you go to a therapist, you're receiving some credible level of support and that there's also accountability and there are certain standards they should be operating by. And if they're not, then that's where the oversight boards are there. You can go to, if they're partially licensed, you can go to their supervisor. If they're working within a clinic, you can go to their clinical director. If there's an issue with the entire clinic, you can go to the licensing agency themselves. Whereas with coaching, there is no oversight. There is no licensing agency. There is no gatekeeping. And gatekeeping would be those um, those people who decide that, yes, you get to get into graduate school, whether that, that's a master's or a PhD. Yeah, because right? that even happens getting into a program. And there can be different levels of how stringent that can be, depending on the program you're getting into. But it happens that there's a gatekeeping at the beginning, there's gatekeeping throughout. throughout. The professors, you have to maintain a certain level of professional ability, a certain level of decorum, certain grade status, and of course different programs are different, but you can be dropped from a program along the way, and then your supervisors, which likely you'll have multiple throughout the time that you are doing your practicum, your internship, and then your your two or so years of being partially licensed, you'll have different supervisors, and they also act as gatekeepers. So there's multiple people deciding whether or not you get to enter in to this field, whereas a self-declared um, professional doesn't have that. Or even if they've you know taken a, a six-week certification course, I've I've run across uh, this quite a bit over the last couple of years where I'm seeing a lot of people call themselves trauma specialists or trauma experts or somatic healers. And I ask them what their certification is or what their specialty is. And what they come back with is, oh, I, I did this, this course and they'll just give me an abbreviation. And so I'll go look up the course and most often it's a six-week online course that's available to anybody and that for me as as someone who did go through you know four years of undergraduate three years of graduate school two years of the supervision um, to become a licensed therapist and then beyond that i've taken continued education courses that are typically at minimum six month courses sometimes up to a year long just to continue to specialize, highly specialize in complex trauma, I can say without a doubt that there is absolutely no way that all of that time and experience and education can be distilled into a six-week online course in a meaningful enough way that these coaches will be able to do more benefit than harm to their clients. And I think for me, when it comes to the discussion about coaching and when it comes to wanting to actually talk about, can you actually be receiving credible coaching? Can you be working with a credible coach? I think the ultimate answer to that is yes. But there are some caveats and things that, like you said, on one level, I'm definitely not surprised that people, when someone is taking this title that feels official, and there are programs, there are certifications that are especially starting to pop up. Like you said, different levels of 
rigor that are getting people certifications to be coaches. And I would say, in this case, certification is better than no certification, but it's knowing the scope of the application of your knowledge. And the problem is there's a lot of this self-proclaimed, I'm a coach, I'm a success coach, I'm a wellness coach. There's no certification. There is no really meaningful credentials behind that. There's no oversight. There's no accountability. In many cases, when people are needing support, they are in a vulnerable position. And when you are taking upon yourself, even if it's self-proclaimed, kind of this mantle of, I am a healer, I can help you. That comes with it, from my perspective, inherently a responsibility. And I feel in a sense, I almost would apply like the term in a sense, there's a stolen valor that comes from people who just claim, well, I'm a coach, I can help you. And the problem is through all these years of education and training and oversight and supervision and these official tests and this making sure that we actually are capable in this area of study and all the gatekeeping that occurs there, there hopefully comes with that, this understanding of the responsibility to our clients. And when you are just taking upon yourself that title, you are gonna be engaging with people who are vulnerable and who need help and who probably in many cases, if some or not all of their issues are purely physiological, neurological, they're coming with wounds that came from other people who didn't nurture them enough or appropriately, who abused them, who traumatized them, who didn't equip them to be able to effectively function in this world or they didn't receive appropriate support or skills training and then you're setting yourself up as this beacon of hope you're making promises to them that a fully trained and licensed professional probably wouldn't because they know better and the problem is i think with education whether it's self-education but especially like in our field where you're providing care and there's actual licensure that you need to possess to conduct therapy, to provide therapy. I feel like any credible professional should, should know the limitations of the application of their knowledge. And this is not something that happens with somebody who wakes up and the reason they think they're equipped to be a coach is, I give good advice. Right. Or, or I make good decisions. And often they've been through it with the help of a therapist. And it can be um, on the end of the client it might seem that what the therapist is doing is quite simple. However, the therapist has so much going on in the back of their mind why they're choosing that intervention for that specific person in that specific moment, given everything that they know about that specific person, as well as all of the different interventions that they could apply in that specific moment. And there's so much in the art of applying the tool mm -hmm. as well. And then there's the assessment of how was that tool received? and then the adjustment along with that. So I, I've worked with, I've had a lot of interactions with coaches uh, as I've shifted my career from more of the mainstream therapy field to more of what would be the equivalent essentially of functional medicine to the medical field is where I lie somewhat on the outskirts of the clinical mental health field at this point. And as I've done so, I've had a lot of interactions with coaches and I've been much more disappointed than I wanted to be with coaches and with what they have to offer and with the integrity at, at which they, they operate. I actually ended up having to make a boundary for myself and my business where I will no longer take on any coaches as a client mm. because too often 
we would get to the end of what we were working on and they would tell me how excited they were to be able to now apply this with their clients. And that is not okay. The techniques that I use as a complex trauma specialist, if I'm not being very careful and constantly assessing and constantly tuning into the process and the application of the tools, I can be doing damage with them. I can be causing a trauma response to come to the surface and to take over the person's life for a while. And that's not, it's, it's inappropriate. And for, for a minute, I had done some trade work with some coaches as well. We were all in a business container together and we did a couple trades back and forth. And I found that even the coaches who had really great marketing copy, which is any words that you, that you see on, on their website, on their ads, anything like that, that's called copy. So that could be really, really great. And it could sound like, wow, this person really knows what they're doing. They've been doing this for a really long time. There's a lot of hype around them. So I would do a trade with them. And I just I have to tell you about the funniest one. <laughs> I am dying to <laughs> And I, I might have told you this before, but it, it cracked me up. Um, there was a woman who was highly professional. It wasn't like she had no education whatsoever. And she was a nurse who worked with a neurosurgeon. And so she had seen brains. And so it would seem that she would have information about brains. And she was really good (laughs) at saying all of the right things. And then we did this trade session. And what it ended up being was two hours. It was only supposed to be an hour and a half two hours of her just saying a whole bunch of random stuff that didn't even apply to anything that was going on in my life. But she was having all of these ideas, but she wasn't calling them ideas. She was calling them downloads. She was getting downloads because she had this special connection with other worlds or something that she had this special connection with. And I was really annoyed. I was I was like, this is a waste of my time. I'm sitting here. I had already done my trade with her and, and it was really meaningful not to toot my own horn, but like, but I actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> and we had made, made some good progress with what she was struggling with. And that, you know, two hours into this, like I just, I needed it to end. And so I was like, well, okay, well, this is, uh, this, this was great. Thanks. Yeah. I've got to go now. And she said, oh, well, we actually haven't started. I, I still need to go. Like, oh, you were just, you were downloading. Mm, you were updating. Yeah, you were, this was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you were updating. And I was like, okay. And I was being polite, partially because we were in this group container together. So I couldn't just say like, no, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this with you. So we scheduled another time so that she could actually go in (laughs) and do what it was that she was going to do. And what that ended up looking like was she had me close my eyes and she started reading out of a book that it was very obvious that she was reading out of a book. But what she was saying was that she was going through my files in another dimension and pulling things out that no longer belonged there. And she was reading things like, you are now going to experience balance in your life. You are now going to experience balance in your business. You are now going to experience balance on your toes or whatever it was. But she went through balance, about 10 different balance things, about 10 different gratitude things. And we were 
maybe two and a half hours in and I just had to say my kids are about to walk through the door they're done with school. This is crazy. This is five hours now of this absolute insanity that is was not what I was expecting. But her plan was to charge people, you know, five, ten thousand dollars for these sessions that she in all of her copy was saying was very neurologically sound and she has the credentials, it would seem, to the lay person to back up those claims. And then she went on to um, write a book about how to become a millionaire, even though was I know she, a millionaire? she was not. She had lost her job and was worried about losing her apartment. And so there's just enough of those types yeah. of situations that happen where, yes, it's funny. It's funny to have gone through. It's a it's, funny story. It's funny <laughs> and it's sad. Yeah. And it's really concerning because these yeah. are the people who are giving a ton of advice all over They're the really media. loud voices on social media and on TikTok and on all of YouTube and all of those forums where even as a clinician, I sit back and I listen to other clinicians. There are voices I really appreciate. I listen to certain law experts. I listen to a variety of people. I like that cross-pollination of ideas. But whenever I am hearing these people give what to me feels like very irresponsible advice, very basic, like base level feels very common knowledge, but they're just talking about it like it's profound. And there are people where that low hanging fruit, it really does, it's what they're needing. But there is very clearly this lack of respect and appreciation for what they're holding themselves out as being, which like with this gal, as you were describing her, I'm like, what would be the title of that position, an interdimensional programmer? But what I am very passionate about, one of the things I'm really passionate about is trying to empower people so that they are not vulnerable to being abused, especially to people who are in positions of power in their life and who could very well engage in manipulating, shaming, extorting them. Whether or not they're trying to. Yes. I think that the vast majority of coaches, if not all coaches, well-intentioned, well-intended, they really want to help and they really feel like they're helping. It feels good to feel like you're helping. There is something innate about giving service, providing support. There is something I think just naturally maybe fulfilling about hopefully trying to act on a, a good impulse to help someone else. But the problem is that desire to help, that also desire to make money and find a career is not underpinned with the investment of time, of education, of being refined, of opening yourself up to receive feedback, to be at times depending on your education and what it looked like, sometimes almost torn down and rebuilt in a different way, at least, at least some of what I felt like I experienced, whether it was the right or wrong way to go about it. But you're opened up to scrutiny. And we need to be when we're in that role of responsibility. And there are even regrettably fully trained, licensed professionals, not just in mental health, but also in other fields that I've encountered and that I've heard of, who even then, after all the safeguarding and all of the gatekeeping and all of the education, still are not mm -hmm. 
credible sources of care and support. The problem is when you're dealing with a coach, there's not enough at this point normalization of asking people, oh, what are your credentials? What is your certification or licensure? So you could be working, if you're working with a coach, you could be working with someone who's been a successful CEO, who is a millionaire, who does have their life together, who does have this special expertise. Maybe they, they are a therapist or they're a doctor. Or you could be working with someone who woke up and went, I think I give really good advice. I think I have things figured out. I'm not a millionaire, but I think I have advice that if someone followed it, they could become a millionaire. Mm -hmm. The problem is you are lying to people. And I think you are falsely asking them to place trust in you that you have not earned. And even as a clinician, I don't feel when I walk in a room, I inherently am deserving of someone's trust. In fact, in wanting to empower people, I'm constantly engaging in, hey, you know what? You're the captain of the ship. I am here to try to help you accomplish what you want to, help you to accomplish the healing, and even to know how to do that for yourself. Like with this gal you're talking about, part of the problem in some of these coaches is I'm the inspired one. I'm the conduit, whether I'm the, we're ragging on coaches, but even like healers, energy healers. Okay, if you trained with some credible energy healer for years and years, I might put a little more stock in that than someone who just thinks they really get people. Right, because they're, they're an empath, right? So they are really highly attuned to people. And, and then what does that actually mean yeah. at the end of the day? For me, what I'm really bothered by is, like you're talking about with this gal, talking about, I'm getting these downloads for you, I'm getting these downloads for you. Even just that, even if operating out of that premise, my brain is like, why aren't you teaching people how to get downloads for themselves? Exactly. That it pulls completely away from trusting the self and being able to say, okay, I, I've got this. So now you have to have this other person who is getting these downloads for you, who is the direct connection to whatever source the downloads are coming from, and you are just a, a regular person so you don't have those. And that always sits really wrong with me. I, I really don't like that. And that happens with therapists as well. You hear, you know, therapy is lifelong and you're always going to need a therapist. And I, I think that th things will come out throughout life that it'll be helpful to have a therapist with or maybe even necessary sometimes to have a therapist. But I don't think that going to therapy once a week, every week of your entire life is something that therapists should be perpetuating, that therapists should be saying, oh yes, well, you can't trust yourself because you're chronically ill, so you have to trust me instead. Therapy should be building towards the client trusting themselves. That's, it sits wrong with me with coaching and with therapy, but I think at least with therapy, there is some merit to I have a level of expertise and experience that I am offering in this as opposed to I am a special divine being and you are not. Yeah, which which there is inherently in any relationship with a professional or some someone putting themselves out there as an expert. There's a power differential there. There's a power imbalance. And again, there's what I think of and talk about as a stewardship with that. And at least for me as a therapist, I try to be so aware of that. And I'm constantly trying to empower my clients to know you are just as 
powerful and important and influential in this relationship as I am. And I am just as open to receiving feedback or thoughts from you, even if they're critical, as I hope for you to feel too. And part of that is not only do I want to learn and grow and be the very best support I can be to them, I want to empower them to practice assertiveness with me and on me. And yeah, I can, I'm never going to uh, cause someone, even if I feel, and I've received sometimes, not kind, and I felt unwarranted critical feedback, I can still validate that. And if they're open to receiving my support, eventually I can help them recognize where if they're going to deliver that kind of feedback, there are more or less effective ways to do it. But even with fully licensed and trained individuals, you can have therapists or doctors or others who don't seem to appreciate that power differential and don't care to balance it. I have a family member right now who literally provided very kind, credible, critical feedback to a clinic about care that was received by a family member that they're caring for right now, a child. And the response from the clinic was, your consequence for bringing up this issue is we're not working with you and you offended our therapists and how dare you accuse us. And, and I'm telling you, because I read back and provided feedback. This person provided feedback to this professional who should know better and there's specific reasons why, should have responded differently. They were completely appropriate in what they did, but even if symptoms had come out toward the therapist and they hadn't communicated well, we as therapists are and should be equipped to handle that and be able to help our clients process through. And like when I heard the response, which by the way, as clinicians, as part of these ethical standards, we have a responsibility not to abandon our clients. There are appropriate discharge and termination procedures. Our clients are allowed to give us critical feedback. They're going to, just like if you were a surgeon, someone's gonna come into the emergency room, they're gonna bleed on you and you can't go, you bled on me, how dare you, I'm not gonna work with you. You're there to do that care. But even in this case, it's a situation where I need to provide support because I'm not okay with this misuse of power and then reinforcing to this vulnerable person that you're not allowed to give credible, credible feedback to us, we're gonna punish you. I have to formulate a complaint and I've gotta send it to their licensing agency. But that exists to protect clients from misbehavior that can happen, even with individuals who are licensed. Where is that for? Where is that for coaches? Right, it's not there. With with therapists, there are therapists definitely who misbehave, and whether that's because they don't know what they don't know, which I think for the vast majority of coaches, that's that's the underlying reason that they're not um, that they're not providing a certain standard of care. With clinicians, sometimes that's the case. Other times, they are way beyond burnt out and stuck in what they're doing. Other times they're operating within a corrupt or dysfunctional system and really wish they could do better, but they can't. So there's some level of moral injury happening that the therapist is trying to work through. There's a lot of reasons that therapists will underperform or perform poorly, like what happened in your situation with your family. And that is why there are the governing entities. There are not only the main licensure, like state-run board, but there are also other agencies that a lot of times these therapists belong to as well that have their own ethics that 
you can file a complaint to as well, and there can be education that then happens. There can be corrective education that happens in these cases. Or a therapist, if it's very egregious, they can lose their license. They can lose their career over these missteps, whereas with coaching, you don't have that to fall back on. Yeah. No, and I and I appreciate that you bring that up because these boards and these oversight committees exist not just to protect clients, but also to help us to execute the treatment and the care we provide at the top level of our capability. It keeps us fresh. It keep, for example, the continuing education you talk about, you are admirably someone who seeks out more than what is the required minimum level of continuing education that we have to do as professionals to to be able to re-up our licenses or for a lot of us it's you know 30 hours a year of required continued education in order to maintain our license which is yeah which is important yeah and it's meant to control for there's advances in the field if you were licensed five years ago ten years ago 30 years ago if you're only operating off of that information we know even research Credibly, you should only be working off of things that is no more than like 10 years old. And even then, it's kind of, okay, is it very credible? Do we have better data out there? But these boards also exist, as you said, not just to punish professionals, but to make sure we're maintaining a, a, a quality of care and that we are ensuring the legitimacy of our profession and on an individual level that if a clinician's really struggling, like you said, whether they're a part of a clinic that is not allowing them to really function uh, ethically or, or at the peak of their professional capability, or you know they're in this really averse to liability place, so anytime a client's at all upset, well, I'm not going to work with you anymore, even though we're there to help people and they're going to struggle. And so you, there might be these, again, unethical practices of just dropping clients and not providing them with referrals or not engaging in appropriate discharge practices. But those oversight committees exist to provide psychoeducation, to provide re-education, to provide additional kind of mandated supervision, or like you said, to terminate someone's license, which means, and I think there's even cases where people, they can have a suspended license. So you need to do these things and then we'll give it to you. We'll give it back to you. But even then you can look up if somebody's ever had a suspended license. If their license is suspended, you can look up if somebody is licensed currently and where they're licensed. And if you are told we are removing this title from you, you cannot just continue to go and call yourself a licensed doctor of marriage and family therapy. If I had a complaint against my license and it was credible and I had done something egregious or serious enough that my license was removed, I could not operate as a therapist. I would have to find some other way to engage in my career or try to help people. But when you have a coach, you literally have people putting themselves out there as a potential support. And what happens if they're working with somebody with, in, in extreme cases, trauma or borderline personality disorder, and those symptoms come up or those trauma responses happen. And not only is the person ill-equipped to provide meaningful care in the first place, and they don't even have the knowledge to know they're practicing outside their scope, but then they all of a sudden go, this is too much, this is scary, or, oh, how dare they talk to me this way? I'm done working with you. So there's this abandonment. There are no standards for how you're supposed to manage that or how you process that with somebody. So you're re-traumatizing someone. You're re-injuring them. And you're just, you're further perpetuating uh, abuse, I think, 
And that, of course, is an ultimate example. But the, these are the potentials for danger there is for individuals operating without any type of training or licensure. Right, and I hear coaches saying that they, they do practice within their scope, that if I, I was talking to a woman the other week who says that she is a somatic trauma coach, she did one of those six week trainings that made her a somatic trauma coach. I think she also did some psych in, in undergrad, which psych in undergrad is, I did psych undergrad, it's very theoretical, it's very history of psych. It's, There's it's a reason why you can't be a therapist without getting that master's degree, even have if you have, have a bachelor's degree. degree. Exactly. The, doing some psych in undergrad it doesn't really mean much. Um, but she was saying that if somebody has complex trauma, then she refers them out. And so my question then is, how do you assess for that? And how are you even equipped? Right. How are you equipped to assess for that? First off, complex trauma isn't a diagnosis. It's a way, it's a theoretical orientation, essentially where you're looking at a wide array of symptoms, and they could be symptoms from ADHD, borderline, bipolar, uh, depression, anxiety, all of these different things. They could even be medical, like inflammatory diseases or, um, or unmanageable weight or whatever the, however the trauma impacted the individual's neurobiology, there can be any number of symptoms, and these symptoms pop up in relationship dynamics in the person's life. and. Um, in their reactions to jobs, to money, in their ability to function, all kinds of different things, uh, so many different areas of the brain and so many different areas of biology. So how is this person with a couple of undergrad psych courses and six, a six-week online certification, how is she assessing who has trauma and who has complex trauma and who she's helping and who she is maybe helping, it seems like, a little bit because there's there's that level of catharsis when you're going through a program, it feels like somebody sees you and understands you and you feel like there's movement along with what you're doing, but then there's other things that are becoming more and more triggered or getting ignored for longer and longer periods of time or even really damaging messages that you're hearing from this person who is putting themselves in the place of an expert that in the long run does much more harm than good to these people. I just don't know how someone at that level would, would know how to assess that. And I say that as somebody who's been at that level before too, right? I think uh, a lot of therapists might feel this way before they go into therapy, being the person that everybody comes to to talk to and feels like they give really good advice <laughs> and is maybe even a little bit on the codependent end of things of feeling like this really deep sense of pride being a rescuer or being the yes, saver of these people come to me and i and they feel a lot better when they talk to me so i'm gonna go through graduate school but in reality it's just a hoop that i need to jump through in order to continue doing what i'm already doing and then you go to graduate school and like elizabeth was just saying you kind of get broken into a lot of different pieces and put back together again with a completely different understanding of the world of people, of yourself, of everything. And then there's the required experience and the supervision and the continued education. And through all of that, then you actually learn what you do and don't know. 
the problem with, like you said, these short courses is for someone who already has that base level, the foundation of being a therapist, um, getting that master's degree, being equipped to know what it is to facilitate the experience of therapy, because the administration of an intervention is not therapy. It's meant to act as a tool to facilitate the possibility of therapy happening. And through that therapy, you are trying to maybe uh, address trauma or heal attachment wounds or address cognitive distortions or any number of things. Not only is just the attainment of the information not enough, and even somebody who's very self-educated, right? Or who has been successfully facilitated through therapy as the client, that doesn't mean I'm equipped to facilitate someone else through the process. The reason why it happened successfully for me as a client is because hopefully I worked with someone who was fully trained and equipped and capable of taking me through that. And my experience, like Andrea was saying, will have been done uniquely to my needs based on the ongoing assessment and the application of skills and just the lenses upon lenses upon lenses of perspective that are in place in every moment of assessment with a therapist. But also in these maybe six week um, programs, there is not the ongoing refinement that occurs through those designated appropriate channels of becoming an expert in a particular field. And of course, we're speaking specific to uh, the mental health therapy field. This applies to other fields though too. I think it definitely applies to other fields where if you go in for a surgery, you cannot now go perform surgeries. No. You go to a chiropractor. that surgery. Yeah. You go to a chiropractor, you get your hair cut. I'm not now equipped to adjust someone's spine or cut someone's hair or color their hair. You go through cancer and you recover. Even if you did so with minimal doctor intervention, you don't understand enough about what exactly happened in your biology, even if you feel like, or even if there's some validity to the fact that maybe you did do certain lifestyle changes, maybe you did use certain essential oils, but there's no way of knowing what exactly had that impact on your biology and your specific biology versus other people's biology in that specific situation to be able to then go out and say, I'm a cancer coach now. I get to help people through cancer because I've been through it myself. And while people are resilient, people are very resilient and were built to recover from not only physical but mental, emotional injury, many of us, some of the deepest wounds we carry are from other people. They are from people who may or may not have held some type of you know, leverage or power over us in our life. And sometimes those wounds come from professionals. But people, we know this, can do damage to other people. And, and sometimes when we think damage, we think physically, but we know sometimes the mental, emotional damage that's done intentionally or unintentionally is some of the worst mm -hmm. and some of the most long lasting and it's not just emotional, too. We think Very of these true. as psychological wounds. Very true. In reality, if you look at ACE research, so ACE research, or um, a simple way to get a lot of information, there's a really good book called Childhood Disrupted, uh, where it goes into the longitudinal research and tons and tons and tons of research that shows that these experiences, these interpersonal experiences throughout our life, with other people, with what they're saying, what they're doing, how they're treating us, causes physical issues down the line as they go unresolved. So things like heart disease, 
cardiac arrest, strokes, even cancer. And I'm not saying that they're the only thing that cause this thing, but they do. There's very, very strong correlation between having a higher ACE score, which is a adverse childhood experience score, and struggling with things like inflammation, like obesity, like cancer, like cardiac arrest, like cardi cardiovascular diseases, strokes. There's a very, very strong correlation. So we're not talking about hurting somebody's feelings. And you're absolutely right. And I pr I'm happy you brought that up because I know for me, I think I even go above and beyond and sometimes, and we all of those separations, even in the treatment field, between mental health and physical health. They're artificially done to make sure you get to the right expert and the right person. But like you said, it is all physiological. It is all neurological because anything we're capable of feeling, anything we are experiencing is absolutely the result of all these processes, not just in our mind, but in our body, hormonally and otherwise. And when we are delving into people's feelings, into their thoughts, into their traumas, we are messing with neurochemistry. We are messing with neural pathways. We are playing around in a territory that is so important and so serious, the stakes are high. And there is this cavalier, casual attitude in the coaching realm, and there are the throwing out at times and the bastardization of terms, the taking upon them certain, like you said, relationship expert, or we were talking about it early, I don't know if it was when we it were recording. It wasn't on here, but really quickly for context, I am in a networking group, I'm in several networking groups, and this morning someone had put a post out introducing themselves, just saying, hi, I'm a serial entrepreneur, I've owned lots and lots of businesses, currently I'm helping people with their relationships. So this. And yeah. you, I think you potentially said, whether you interpreted it that way or they had said, they had framed themselves as a relationship expert. Mm -hmm. And the point is, those types of words mean something. Now, of course, the more people bandy them around, again, the bastardization meaning the over-application, the inappropriate application, so that a term ends up meaning nothing. It's like gaslighting. It's yeah. thrown around a lot. It's a very popular, it's a very popular term right now, popularized probably who knows how? I don't know how it got out there. And there's kind of a general social awareness, but often a misapplication of that term or overgeneralization, which happens. Thinking. That one went wild several years ago where, yeah, there's a time and a place for positive thinking, but it's not going to actually change things to the level at which a lot of these online gurus are saying that it's going to change things. You can't shift the fate of the universe by thinking positive thoughts and there there's this idea that i've heard where from coaches where you're supposedly your brain can't compute negative sentences so you can't say i don't like this you have to say i do like this and there's there's just so much research out there that shows that yes it doesn't even necessarily take longer. If it's a really complex sentence, it might take a little bit longer. It might activate to more regions of your brain. But so long as you have access to the regions of your brain required for language comprehension in general, you should be able to easily, very easily comprehend negative sentences. So some people talk about imposter syndrome. That can be where you truly are. You are an expert, you are capable, you are accomplished but you have this self-doubt, you don't, you feel like you're going to be found out, 
which I think a lot of therapists who are fully equipped and capable and doing a great job can struggle with that. You have the opposite end of that, which is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it is this effect, which in the basic sense, hopefully I don't butcher it, it's the idea that you know just enough to be overconfident and think you know quite a lot, but your scope of knowledge of something is so narrow and so shallow, you don't even realize how much you're taking for granted the all the other stuff you don't know, that your brain is making up for that by making assumptions, by making connections or filling in the gaps of your lack of knowledge in ways that can be really detrimental to other people. But you haven't had the refinement, you haven't had the education, you haven't had the oversight to even be self-aware of the scope of your understanding. And so Dunning-Kruger effect, we can kind of see this, I think, even play out in kind of kids and teens and preteens because they only know what they know and what they've experienced and it feels like everything. And so they can kind of come from this place and their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed and hormonally they're going through so much. So they can truly kind of feel like, I know, I know everything. And it's a very natural thing, but the hope is we grow out of that and then we kind of get this awareness of, oh, there's so much I don't know through experience or education. But with coaches, you see this excessive, uh, inappropriate levels of confidence in their skills and their knowledge over-promising, under-delivering. They don't have the skill set. They don't have the experience. They don't have the credibility to be saying or promising what they are. And yet they are some of the most, at times, charismatic and loud voices. And I just, I feel so much pain and worry over people, vulnerable people getting roped into that. And I have experienced people mm -hmm. who have been, even though they don't realize it, often until later, taken advantage of and they are then suffering from additional traumatization and not to bastardize that term because you are truly the trauma expert between the two of us. But they have been further injured by people who probably really wanted to help them, but wanted to cut corners mm -hmm. in being able to do that and then want to hold themselves out in a way that they don't even realize how detrimental it is to misrepresent claiming to be an expert. And often in the name of uh, being superior to therapy, I see that really often within a coach's narrative that therapists are going to get you stuck in the past and that coaches are going to help you move into the future. And that's this really widespread narrative. And as we're talking, I'm, I'm thinking as well about you know, why, why do we care so much? Why are we talking about this? And I would love to hear for you why you care. And for both of us to share that too, because yeah, yeah why? Why are we? Why, why, are we it, why does it even matter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like they're they're not hurting us individually, uh, so why do we care so much? And and for me, as Elizabeth was just saying, I have seen clients who, whether or not they have hired a coach, are consistently impacted by the wider narrative spread by coaches. These very just unhelpful tips and tricks and hacks and all of these ways that you should live your life if you want to be this wealthy, beautiful person that is just serene and peaceful, then you have to do it a certain way and you can't have these certain thoughts. And I have worked with clients who it's incredibly difficult to for them to engage in the, the real therapeutic process because they're very much hung up and afraid 
about this other coaching process, but but no, I can't let myself feel that emotion because then I'll manifest it. I can't let myself talk about this because then that will become my reality. And you know, I know I'm supposed to be thinking positive, and so it's really hard to to convince when the entire narrative online is being run by coaches. So they're seeing it from so many different people who are calling themselves experts, who have you know a ton of followers. And, and in our society, if somebody's famous, they're the expert. And I, I saw this kind of the other week with a situation with Brene Brown where there's a training going around for therapists, but they're advertising it in non-therapy spaces just to you know cast a large net for their advertising, I assume that these are experts. These are the people who trained Brene Brown. They are expert experts in shame and in these regions that Brene Brown talks about. And she, she does a great job and she's a great researcher and she's a great storyteller. But there were several people in the comments saying, where is Brene Brown on this training panel? Brene Brown is the expert. And in reality, Brene Brown was trained by these experts and has she's mentioned their names in stuff that she's on her books or podcasts. But that's how our society currently functions. If you are the celebrity, if you are the most well-known, then you are the best. If you have the best marketing copy, then you are the best. So it's very hard when you have, you know, this therapist who is, you know, you talk to once a week, you're not friends with them on Facebook because... It's an ethical gray area, but most therapists draw a line at, you know, we're not going to be friends on Facebook or on Instagram or on TikTok. So you're not seeing their constant messaging. And like we talked about last time, a lot of times therapists are, are not, they don't have enough of freedom in their life. They're working quite a bit. So there's not as much time to just be generating content. And they are very, very careful with the content that they generate because they don't want to overgeneralize or or say things that somebody might weaponize or, or take wrong or you know, so there's a lot of being careful as a therapist that keeps us from being as loud as coaches and it does real damage to clients to the therapeutic process on the more extreme end I um, I have one client that's coming to mind right now but I I feel like I've worked with more than just this one who really, really worries about her thoughts creating things to the to more of a, a level of obsessive compulsive where, you know, if I don't do the certain thing or if I don't think the certain way, then somebody I love could die and it would be my fault. And that's the stuff that when you're going out there talking about your thoughts become your reality and, and all of that kind of stuff. And when she's looking at all these different things throughout the day and it's popping up she's not seeking it out but it's, it's everywhere coaches are everywhere when it's that messaging it's really hard to not be really quite anxious well, about that and then if something bad happens to you that's the result of horrible coincidence of events or someone hurts you abuses you hurts your child or abused you in the past if you already have that chronic struggle with almost an idea of I manifest what I think, kind of that thinking error that you're struggling with, other people thinking that they're helping can be reinforcing a sense of victim blaming that a person puts on themselves, where they carry this sense of, well, I must have done something wrong to create this in my life because I'm already struggling with that sense that my thoughts are so powerful that I'm creating it. It gets in the way of somebody being able to heal and it 
it, again, for me, the potential for the unintentional application of shame and guilt, because shame and guilt are so physically, mentally, emotionally, holistically damaging. I don't even know if there's any type of application of those, maybe beyond an extreme cases where there are truly, but even then, like criminogenic people who prey on other people. And so they wouldn't be susceptible to shame or guilt anyways, because of the lack of of capability of experiencing a full spectrum of, of uh, empathy and, and care towards other people. But I think for the general adaptive being trying to thrive and be happy and to be healthy, the potential for shame and guilt or reinforcing these toxic beliefs or perspectives is really damaging. And you might have a client where you do want them to recognize they, they have an ability to create amazing things in their life if they can harness their ability to direct their thoughts and to have awareness of their emotions and to direct and, and, and express and manage those meaningfully. And then to act in ways that, that help them accomplish what they'd like to in their life. But as a therapist, you have to, hopefully you have a respect and you're so careful about what you're reinforcing, what you're not reinforcing. Again, the interventions you're using, the interventions you don't use, even sometimes the application of silence, or there's moments where you might want to swoop in and rescue. But as a therapist, if someone's in pain, you're realizing, but I need to empower them and I won't empower them by rescuing them or coddling them as much as I can tell. They really would love someone to do that. But then you're also running it through a filter of, do I as a safe attachment object and a uh, figure acting as a kind of a stand-in parent as they're trying to be, be reparented into healing certain things, do I need to step in and provide? There's all of these filters and you're judging and we are capable of making mistakes. As professionals, we will make mistakes. And again, hopefully though, we are being so careful that we're controlling for that to a certain degree where we minimize that occurring or at least we have the self-awareness and the professionality and uh, mindfulness of the self of the therapist, where like I said, in, in my case, why I care so much about this is I have seen, seen too many people suffer as a result of being disempowered and the unintentional or intentional abuse and exploitation or them not, them carrying this pain of not knowing they could have stood up. Mm -hmm or they could have advocated for themselves. It, it makes me frustrated to a point where I, like I said, as a clinician, I am willing to be a receptacle for somebody being empowered towards me, even if maybe something's misplaced onto me because I'm like, yes, you deserve to be able to speak up for yourself. You deserve to be able to advocate for yourself and you deserve to not feel you need to kowtow to anyone. And I also try to embody that in a healthy way that's not meant to bulldoze other people. But I, I know for a fact, if you have not undergone some type of credible, even if it's minimal, training, education, oversight, you are not equipped to put yourself out there as any type of expert in helping someone through trauma, with relationships, or in any other way. And the problem is, if you haven't done any of the training, you don't even know that you're outside of your scope. And so you can be trampling carelessly on these other people's well-being and lives and, and their mental health or their relationships, and you don't even know the damage you're doing. Right. So I did just want to say one thing to anyone who 
is a coach who might fall into that category if you don't have any specialized training or education and you're wanting to help people and you're wanting to be a coach, I would just invite you, almost beg you, but invite you, seek out adequate training, education, certification, and licensure to equip yourself to be able to do that thing that you probably feel really strongly compelled to do. Do yourself and anyone who you might encounter professionally the service of being able to experience from you someone who's truly qualified to help them. Make sure in your efforts to help others, you're not putting yourself in a position to actually do more harm than good. Consider all of the many ways that we help each other as humans. Coaching, directly being involved in somebody's mental well-being intentionally from that angle is not the only way. We benefit from so many different things in our lives. Musicians, artists, actors, authors, even fictional authors are oftentimes much more life-changing than self-help authors because you get to be in another world and another perspective and, and live life in somewhat parallel to this fictional person who you can relate to as opposed to um, being taught something directly. I was at a networking event for people who work with addiction the other week and there were all kinds of, of people there. There was a company who they they employ people who would otherwise not be employed because they have a criminal background due to their addiction, which is a whole other topic of how that's completely not okay. But they, but that is their way of helping by employing their business skills in a way that is that is so needed. Recreational stuff, all also incredibly necessary for everybody's mental well-being. Uh, there's so many different ways to help. Maybe look at your skill set. What is your training? What is your expertise in? And your values and how can that apply to helping the world progress, helping people progress, helping people have opportunities without it being coaching. Yeah, explore your options. And just because coaching is kind of the popular thing right now, it's the low hanging, unregulated fruit, which hopefully we will see more regulations as that field seems to solidify. If you land on coaching, be the most educated, the best qualified, certified, completely legitimate coach that you can be. Be that generation of coaches that writes the programs that are what people need to experience to actually fulfill the requirements to become a coach. If you're in that field and you feel like you're one of those who is educated and qualified, start to build structures of general ethics or programs and oversight committees that are meant to empower other individuals to truly become actual experts and professionals in that field and to weed out people who are not a good fit or not equipped to do that. But strive for that rather than seeing coaching as kind of this net that can be a catch-all for, well, I don't know what to do, but I need to make money. I'll call myself a coach. 
if we're going to societally continue using that, which I think we probably will, that needs to mean something. And so that's my invitation to you. And they, there are therapists who use, who are fully trained, licensed therapists who utilize the techniques that you see coaches using in a very watered, watered down way. So there is a way, if you're looking for a therapist, if you want a therapist who doesn't delve into the past at all, who doesn't really go into anything other than you need to get from A to B in your life and that's what you want, then there are you know, brief solution-focused therapists, there are motivational interviewing therapists, there are acceptance and commitment therapists, and, and all of these are well-researched therapeutic tools that therapists specialize in, that the therapists who choose to specialize in them specialize in them. But a lot of therapists, those are also really basic skills that most therapists do learn during graduate school as well. So they are available and you can, to a certain extent, customize your therapeutic experience so long as you are looking at therapists through that lens of they're not all the same, there are over 400 modalities of therapy. Therapists go down different specialization tracks. So it might take a while to find the right therapist, and you might end up finding a therapist who is in a different state, but they offer coaching for the, you know, to be able to operate outside of their state line. So it might not be in person, but you can find somebody who can, can help you get to what you want, who won't be causing harm and won't be, in reality, way overcharging you. It's it's silly what coaches are charging in comparison to therapists, partially because they do offer guarantees and they do have all of that marketing and, and all of the hype around them that therapists typically don't, but they leverage that to charge a lot more than a much more effective therapist is going to charge. Oftentimes what I hear steers a person to a coach rather than a therapist is stigma around the mental health field. And I do think that the mental health field has shot itself in the foot many times over in creating that stigma and maintaining that stigma and therapists do it as well. It's the system, it's the individuals. There's a lot of reasons for that stigma and societal reasons for that stigma as well. And there does not need to be anything wrong with you. And there are many therapists who believe that there is absolutely nothing wrong with you when you're seeking mental health support from a licensed therapist. That might be the idea of some therapists, maybe even some therapists that you've run into. But unless you're working through insurance, there is no diagnosis required. So there there doesn't have to be a, oh, well, you struggle with this condition and, and that's why you're not reaching your goals and, and now we're just making excuses for you instead of actually helping you make your goals, which isn't necessarily what happens with the diagnosis. But if that's how you feel, and if you want to avoid that stigma and avoid being um, told about all of the things that are, you know, wrong with you or, you know, that's, that's not the case with a good amount of the mental health field. A lot of therapists out there operate from a wellness perspective. As a complex trauma specialist, I, I definitely operate from the perspective of you have everything within you. You know, you're not a broken individual. 
some things on a biological level have shifted in a way that is now causing some issues. However, once we you know, connect to what we need to connect to within you and shift a couple of those back, then natural processes will start to unlock the rest and, and you'll be good to go. And there are a lot of therapists who operate from that perspective where we don't stigmatize at all. We don't think, oh, well, you know, there's something wrong with you and so you need you need help from me. So find a therapist. If you're worried about that, find a therapist who doesn't work with insurance, who isn't going to give you a diagnosis. Who's willing to do a consult with you where you can ask questions and get a feel for if you feel like this is somebody that you emotionally and even just uh, person to person can connect with. That's important too. It is. Well, find, find the right therapist for you, essentially. There are therapists out there who offer everything that you're looking for. It's just a matter of finding the right one. And it takes more time because they're not loud and they're not all over the internet. You have to look for them and do the consults. And But it will be worth it when it comes down to making real grounded progress in your life. And if you need help, and if you're struggling, reach out for that help. I would say try to reach out to somebody who's equipped and they're, they're educated and they're capable of providing you with the support you deserve. And if you've had a bad experience with a therapist, know that as even uh, Andrea was saying, it's probably just a matter of maybe that therapist was a good therapist, but they weren't the one that's really going to resonate with you. Don't let one experience with one therapist define your idea of what that experience or the field looks like. It can vary so incredibly from person to person. And so hopefully this is helpful information. I know a lot of people struggle to even reach out for help. And then if, if the experience isn't successful or the therapy isn't good for one reason or another, it can be discouraging, but try not to give up. This will be where there's value in us doing other, having other conversations about uh, therapy, therapists, different modalities, different specialities. Like Andrea takes more of a route of specializing in trauma treatment. And while I have received uh, special training education to assist people with borderline personality disorder, I do, and Andrea does as well, works with not just people who have experienced uh, trauma or particular types, although I know you've been specializing more specifically. There are therapists who go down the routes of becoming more and more specialized over time. There are therapists like myself where I do tend to have more of a general focus, although I will put myself out there for specific areas where my expertise is even above or my skill level is above what kind of the average uh, kind of typical general therapist is. And most therapists, from what I have seen, even ones who tend to specialize in one direction, are using an integrative approach because there are, as Andrea said, multiple modalities. And within those modalities, there's a variety of interventions. And often there's a lot of crossover. And a lot of them can be even similar things, but reframed. But hopefully, even in working with a therapist, hopefully they can, in a way that makes sense to you, and if they can't, that's a good thing to maybe decide if you do or don't work with them. But knowing enough, most people I know aren't, haven't been empowered or, or maybe even taught with a potential therapist asking them, you know, do you operate by any certain modalities or tell me how treatment works, you know, with you. 
or for, what is your experience in working with this specific type of situation or with uh, somebody who is experiencing what I'm experiencing or has the goals, what is your success rate? They, they feel like uncomfortable questions to ask, like they feel like you're being rude maybe or nosy or, but they're, they're valid questions yeah. and they absolutely should be asked. And I think even beyond the realm of therapy, I'm, I'm, for me, with the people that I work with, generally, I'm all about wanting to make sure people are getting the appropriate uh, medical support, working with the right professionals, that they are, of course, taking care of their body on a base level, trying also not to go beyond the scope of what I'm able to really get into when it comes to nutrition and fitness, but trying to not take for granted how important those things are. But but even like with doctors, I want my clients to be empowered to be able to be very assertive with their medical professionals. And if they're not feeling heard or if their medical professional isn't meeting their need or doesn't have the specialization or expertise to help them. For example, like with thyroid issues, I deal with thyroid issues and I work with a lot of people that deal with thyroid issues. Not every doctor is equipped to really help you. They can do the base level test, but usually you don't feel good even after getting that base level support. And so I think in all realms, knowing for me, I don't just want somebody being skeptical or vetting coaches and going, what's your credentials? What's your expertise? I, I think it's important you feel empowered to do that with anyone, whether it's a potential mental health professional, a doctor, even spiritual leaders, anybody who kind of it's like, well, I'm the professional and you should just respect that. I feel like you should be skeptical of that. Right. And you anyone... deserve, you get to build trust. You get to have trust with other people and do what it takes for you to build that trust and ask the questions that you need to ask. And, and it's hard to know what those questions are as well. But baseline, you know, qualifications and how have you worked with people, you know, just like me and... Of course, that gets difficult with coaching because the, with the way niching goes, they've typically worked with a lot of people just like you and have all kinds of stories. So, you know, the, those qualifications. And then a, a question that I like to ask medical professionals is, what are the, the differentials here? So your expertise might be adrenal fatigue or your expertise might be toxic mold. And the symptoms that I'm experiencing might overlap those two. But if I go to you, you're going to say that it's this. And if I go to you know this other person, they're going to say that it's this. But can they honestly tell you that, yes, it could be, could be mold, it could be trauma, it could be diabetes, it could be allergies to different things. Or are they just going to say, no, this is absolutely what's happening with you. And I am the only expert that is capable of working with you. And you absolutely have to come to me. Uh, that's a red flag. For me, but maybe we can go into some more questions and some more red flags next time or, or in another podcast. But for, for me, uh, and I think for Elizabeth as well, part of why we chose to do this podcast was we were having these kinds of discussions just over and over and over again over the last couple of years of feeling really frustrated and about this narrative that's happening and how it's affecting not just our clients and, and individuals, but the world and this, you know, disconnect that it seems like we're slowly shifting out of a state of grounded reality. So instead of feeling just powerless and frustrated about it, we decided that we were going to do our part 
in shifting that narrative. And, and we want to also create a platform for other therapists to also be able to come and guest on here and share your perspective and work towards taking a hold of some of the narrative. And, and not just surrounding coaching, but mental health, emotional health, other things in general too. I feel like we had a meaningful conversation and one that I haven't heard take place between other professionals. Again, understandably, many professionals are very weary about putting their voice out there. And I do think a lot of times it can come from fear. It can come from self-doubt, kind of that worrying and, and that imposter syndrome, but also it does come from, we're trying to be so careful and understand we don't put ourselves out there as the ultimate experts of anything we talk about. We are anything we say, putting it within the context of our experience and our training, which is going to be specific to us. But if you have had positive or negative experiences with therapists or coaches or other professionals, we would love to hear about it. If you have questions for us about this or anything else, we would love to hear those and have a chance to answer them as well. And I know for myself, I'm always open to recognizing where I think the, the field of opportunity is broad. I do think there's space for medical doctors and mental health clinicians and coaches, but there is this important need to understand the scope of our, of our skills and of our practice and to take seriously the roles of caretaking that we are a part of or that we put ourselves out there as being. And so hopefully this was a meaningful conversation. I know I got a lot out of talking about it with you. Yeah, I did as well. And I think that it is really important. And as nerve wracking as it can be, and as, as many thoughts and, you know, go through my mind of, oh, you know, do I really want to put myself out there in this way? I, I feel that it's important to be brave. I feel that it's important to to take up space, to have a voice, to to be you know, something different that can be listened to as well, even if that loses us maybe some friends or um, some respect from some other group of people. Or it is nerve wracking, but I, I would like to invite other therapists as well to be brave. I've noticed. I do create content on social media as a therapist and a lot of times the the people on in my comment sections who are upset are therapists and I think that that's a lot due to fear of not going outside of what might be viewed as ethical bounds or and I am really careful to not do anything that's unethical with any of my writing, but it's also very difficult. We're taught to be very stringent. We're taught to be, to almost not be people. And we talked about that in our previous episode to therapists who might be feeling triggered right now, who might be feeling like, oh, this isn't an okay conversation to have. This isn't our place to have this conversation. I would like to invite you to, to consider uh, what is your position and how does this fill into the the ethics of being a therapist, which do include advocacy. And that's where I believe that this falls into is advocacy is more of that broad, I'm not acting as an individual therapist in this setting. However, I am advocating for a more mentally sound world, for a more grounded narrative around mental well-being. 
I'm totally on the same page with everything you just said. And I know for me how isolated at times I can feel, not just as a therapist, but as a human being. And it can be hard to connect with our worlds being so expanded out and so digital. And if we think in the past, people used to live in these tight, small little communities and there's pros and cons to that, but it can be hard to find connection. And I know there are, as I've mentioned before, voices I listen to in a variety of different areas that I learn from, I'm entertained by, and I feel like they are part of my support system, even though they don't know me. And so I know I'm grateful to have you as part of my direct support system because you're brilliant and incredible and I learn from you all of the time and just, you're so fun to be around too. And I hope maybe we can be some of those voices for other people and like you said, encourage others to speak out, share their knowledge, share their experiences, so that we can normalize that a bit more. And there is a cost to not speaking out. There will be narratives being had and there will be people directing them and we can lose out on making sure we're counterbalancing sometimes toxic or unhealthy or misinformed narratives with our real expertise. So hopefully everyone found this interesting all the everyone's who found us, if anyone's listening. <laughs> We'd love to see your comments. We'd love to, to have the opportunity to respond to you, interact with you. It, it, was, it was a great conversation. I loved having it with you, Elizabeth. And I'll Me talk too. to you next time. Yep. Talk to you later and catch everybody later. Okay. We waved at the sky. <laughs> We're like, goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye our invisible friends. <laughs> <laughs>